We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. Well, church, we are in week two uh, this morning of our Christmas series called Shadows of Christmas. And in this series, we are celebrating uh, the coming of Jesus as our Messiah and King. And we're doing that by seeing him as the greater substance to every shadow that came before. That we're celebrating the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment or the culmination, if you will, of every promise of God to redeem and restore humanity. Last week we said he is the divine substance to every Old Testament shadow. Now what do I mean by Old Testament shadows? Well, when we talk about the shadows that came before Christ, what I mean is every appointed person or place or practice that was designed to point us to God, to help us see him better and know him more. And from kings to prophets to sacrifices to offerings. These were all shadows, reflections, or previews, uh, if you will. Uh, And while they were the shadows and the reflections that were pointing us to God, when Jesus came, he was the very substance of God. And that's why we celebrate. That's why Christmas matters so much. It is why we take the entire Advent season to celebrate the coming of Jesus. Because from the moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. God made a promise that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. That was the first promise of a Messiah. And throughout the Old Testament, that promise is then kept, it is nourished, it is revived, it is moved along um, through every prophecy and every shadow. So that um, I want you to see just some of these. You know, we've got four weeks of this series, so we can't possibly look at every single shadow of Christ. And so this morning, I just very quickly, I want you to see some of these, and I hope some of them are new to you, and I hope all of them are an encouragement to you and cause you to stand in awe of the coming of Christ. And so the first one we see uh, that I want us to look at is Genesis 22. We see that he is the lamb of sacrifice. In Job chapter 33, we see he is the mediator. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, he is the faithful priest. In Psalm chapter 2, he is the anointed one. And then Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. In Psalm 118, verse 22, he's the cornerstone. Um, In Isaiah chapter 11, he's the root of Jesse. In Zechariah chapter 13, he's the foundation, or excuse me, the fountain from the house of David. 
And in Micah chapter 5, he's the ruler of Israel. And I love these last two. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, he's the messenger of the new covenant. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, he is the refiner's fire. And all of those, every single one of them are about one person. And he is all of those and so much more. And that is Jesus Christ. And he is why we celebrate Christmas. Now, as we celebrate this season and, 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 and just stand in awe at the advent of our Savior, I do think there's something we have to be guarded against. I know that I do. I have to be guarded against this um, every year. And here's what I have to be guarded against, that, that I don't lose the wonder in the familiar. That I don't lose the wonder in the familiar. What do I mean by that? I mean, I think there's a danger for us in that we are so familiar with the story of the coming of Christ. We've heard it for most of our lives. Some of you, maybe your family has a tradition of reading it at Christmas Eve. We, we know the story, right? You know, my wife Carrie lived in the state of Oregon for almost a year uh, when she was in college. She was a missionary up there. And um, so for our, she made a lot of great relationships and friendships. And so for our honeymoon, we went back to the Portland area. And, and so has anybody ever been to the Northwest in that area? It's unbelievably beautiful, right? It's just unbelievably beautiful. Everything is green. Um, it all looks painted. It's just uh, beautiful. And so we were up in outside of Portland around the Corbett area, and there's this road. They call it Falls Road, and it just goes by all of these wonderful waterfalls. And the biggest and the most impressive of those is a waterfall called Multnomah Falls. And I've got a picture of it. That's a picture of Multnomah Falls. Now, when you pull up to, it looks like that. That's not, that's what it looks, that's what you see when you pull up, right? And so we, we get out, we park, and as you, get your, to, as you get closer, you're struck by several things. One is the thunderous sound of the water plunging hundreds of feet down the mountain to hit a pool. You can't see the upper pool. And then it coming and plunging again into the lower pool. And it's just this thunder in your ears. You can stand this close to one another and you have to yell to be heard. Um, that's one of the things you're struck with. The other is just the sheer beauty of what you're looking at. It's lush. It's green. It's unbelievable. And I remember getting out of the car and having to scoop my jaw up out of the dirt because I was like, look at this. It's so beautiful. But then I noticed something that drove me crazy. And that is that the people who live there were just driving by that thing like it wasn't even there. Right? They were going down the Falls Road and they passed it. They wouldn't even look to the right to see this stunning display <laughs> of God's creativity, and they would blow right past it and all the other waterfalls on their way to work or whatever. And, and I remember thinking, what, what are you guys doing? How do you not stop here every day and have your quiet time? I don't understand where you're going. And, um, but what, what was happening? They, they live there. They're, they're familiar, right? And in essence, that unbelievable thing had lost the wonder for them. And I think that happens to us with the Christmas story. We there was a time when we were overwhelmed by it, and we thought, wow, how beautiful, this, this birth, and miraculous, this birth, and, and the angels coming, and the shepherds, and, 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 and Bethlehem, and all of these things that God was piecing together to create this unbelievable narrative. But I think we can lose the wonder. So I don't want us to lose the wonder 
in the familiar. Because I think as we, as we rightly uh, stand in awe of the coming of Christ, two things are going to happen. I, or, or excuse me, there are two reasons, if you will, why we ought to stand in awe of the coming of Christ. Here's the first one. Because the coming of Christ is the revealing of the glory of God. It is the revealing of God's very glory. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 5, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. And he says this of his coming. He says that in him, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And then we go forward to John chapter 1, verse 14, also speaking of Jesus. And, and John says this, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus, the word. And he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's this moment. That's the glory of God being revealed to us. That's a reason to stand in awe. Here's the second one. It's this. Because the coming of Christ is the dawning of indescribable and indestructible joy for mankind and peace between God and man. I tried to figure out a way to say that in fewer words. Sorry. Okay. It just was long. It just was long. Right? He is um, the dawning of indescribable and indestructible joy for mankind and peace between God and man. And so if you remember when the shepherds were out in the field and they were taking care of their sheep and the angel appeared to them and they were terrified, uh, which is what any of us would be. But what did the angel say? He said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great what? Great joy. It's the dawning of indescribable and indestructible joy. And then just moments later, it says that the heavens were filled with the heavenly host and they were praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. Again, the revealing of his glory. And on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the dawning of God's glory. It is the dawning of, of uh, indestructible and indescribable joy and peace with God. You see, the moment Adam and Eve fell, all men fell, all of us, all mankind fell. We learned last week how because of the sin of Adam, we are all born with a sin nature. We're born separated from God. But in that moment that Adam fell, God's redemptive promises began immediately. It began immediately. And, and his plan for redeeming mankind back to God, uh, redeeming us back to God began, which is to say this, that there is a redemption line that runs from the Garden of Eden to eternity, and that line is Jesus Christ. Amen. He has connected the garden where we fell to eternity where we will spend with God forever. It is a redemption line, and that line is revealed in Christmas. It's why we stand in awe. It's why we stand in awe. And I believe that because those things are true, this moment of his birth is worthy of wonder. I think it is worthy of our mind's attention and our heart's affection. Amen? Amen. And that's what I want to give it today. So um, with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. 
while you're going there, just a quick reminder, we were in Romans chapter 5 last week, and um, we were looking at how Jesus is the greater Adam, how all that was lost and destroyed in Adam is redeemed and restored in Jesus. And this week we're looking into Genesis chapter 22. This is a very familiar story in God's Word. It's the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, most of the sermons that you will hear uh, out of Genesis chapter 22 are, are going to be about the faith of Abraham and his remarkable obedience to God. That's what most of the sermons are going to be out of 22. And listen, that is true, and it is worthy of seeing and valuing uh, this morning. Uh, but I want us to see something different. I want us to see something new, hopefully something that uh, will, will be refreshing to your heart. Uh, because, see, I think when we put on the lens of the gospel, uh, which is the filter that we are able to look through that causes everything from the Old Testament Old Testament to be viewed in light of the new. When we put on that gospel lens, it causes us to, causes us to see this story differently. And um, you see, I think if we only see this text as a test and a trial in the life of Abraham, I think we're missing the greater point. I think we're missing the greater point. Point. This experience in the life of Abraham and Isaac is setting the table of expectation, if you will. It's setting the table of anticipation for something greater, that there's something greater. And while this story is a story about Abraham and how he almost sacrifices his son, it is pointing to, and it is a shadow of a greater story, when our Heavenly Father would actually sacrifice his son for us. And that is what I want you to take away this morning. Here's the takeaway for the morning. It's this. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. He is the righteous sacrifice for all mankind. So let's look at Genesis chapter 22. Let's start in verse 1 together. It says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, and then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
And then Abraham Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Let's pray. Lord, I'm asking that you would shine the light of your glory on your word for us today. Um, God, that you would illuminate it. God, I ask that every week because every week I need it. Every week I need your word illuminated in my heart and before my eyes, God, to draw out for us, Lord, what is most important and help us see it. Help us hear your voice, Father. I pray again today that you would protect your bride and your church from anything that is of me and you would magnify what is of you. Would you do that today? Would you do that right now, God? In Jesus' name, amen. So, there are some, just really two takeaways that I want us to t- uh, have this morning out of this unbelievable story of Abraham and Isaac. And here's the first one. It's this, where Isaac was the shadow, Jesus was the substance. Where Isaac was the shadow, Jesus was the substance. You see, when we look at this story of Abraham and Isaac through the gospel lens, we can't help but notice some striking parallels between Isaac and Jesus, and I want to take a few moments here and just kind of unpack with you uh, the marked similarities between them. And so there's Isaac the shadow and Jesus the substance. You know, when I was in college, I took a, uh, took a trip to New York City. I only have to go once. I never have to go again. And um, I went one time, and uh, if you're from New York City, it's just not, you know, it's not for me. I'm from Cason, Texas. I can't handle it. And um, I was there for three days, and um, we were walking around. It was all these really cool things. And um, as you're in that downtown area, you spend a lot of time in the shadow of and, and looking at the Empire State Building. And from the ground, it's just this impressive thing that is kind of dominating so much of the landscape. And you walk through its shadow all day long. But toward the end of our trip, we went up into the Empire State Building, and here was the view that we had uh, from that. I, I spent th- three days walking around on streets that you can't hardly see in the shadow of this building, but toward that third day, I went up in the building, and all of a sudden, the shadow became substance. I saw what looked impressive from the ground took my breath away from the top, right? It got real in a hurry. Has anybody ever been up in the Empire State Building? It's unbelievable. You feel, like, you feel like the earth is moving. It doesn't feel right up there. And um, I'm not meant to be that far off the ground, I can tell you that. But it was, it was such an a interesting moment and a cool moment to have looked at that thing for three days. And now, here I am standing at the top, and everything about the city changed for me. And that's what happens in a moment in a story like this with Abraham and with Isaac. When we put on the gospel lens, all of a sudden we come out of the shadow and we see the substance and the whole landscape changes. And so I want you to see some of these um, 
similarities, but I want you to see them as what the, we see in the shadow of Isaac we find as the substance in Jesus, all right? So here's the first similarity is this. Isaac was a miracle baby. Isaac was a miracle baby. What do I mean? I mean that uh, Abraham was 100 years old. That's three digits. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and sweet Sarah was 90. Okay? Anybody signing up for that? Newborn at 190? No thanks. Not me. I'm not doing it. And so that's a miracle. They were well past, well past the years of, of bearing a child. And yet here is this 100-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman, and they give birth to a son. That's a miracle birth. Jesus was a miracle birth. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. By human standards, neither of these men should be born. And yet both were miracle births. Isaac was promised long before he was born. Do you know that in Genesis chapter 12 and in 17, that's where we see the promise of God, that God would make the descendants of Abraham outnumber the, the stars in the sky. That was when Abraham was 70. It was some 30 years later in Genesis chapter 21 that Isaac is born. Isaac was promised long before he was born. But listen, Jesus was promised long before he was born. We've already mentioned it, that the moment Adam fell, God made a promise that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. That's Jesus Christ. Both were promised long before they were born. And some thousands of years after that promise in the garden, Jesus fulfills the promise. Isaac was his father's only begotten son. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, your first thinking is, wait a minute, didn't Abraham have a son named Ishmael? Right? Didn't, that, that, it says, how, how is he the only begotten son? Well, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, they spent all of their lives trying to conceive and have a child. And Sarah was barren and could not bear children. And so she devised this plan in her mind that somehow in the moment seemed right to her. I really can't imagine any of the ladies in this room doing the plan. But in the moment, it seemed right to her, which is she took her servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar, and she gave her to Abraham in an attempt to give him a descendant. She, took a, she, she basically let go of what she knew to be true about God, took a plan into her own hands. Anybody guilty right here? So she gives Hagar to Abraham, and Abraham uh, conceives of a child with Hagar, and that child is Ishmael. So how in the world, then, is Isaac Abraham's only begotten son? And here it is, because Ishmael was not the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. So much so that when Isaac was getting ready to come onto the scene, do you know what God told Abraham to do? He said, you need to send Hagar and Ishmael away. I'll take care of them. I will provide for them. Matter of fact, I'm going to make a nation out of him as well. But Isaac is your son of promise. So that when God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, what does he say? He says, take your son, your only son. See, in the eyes of God, Abraham had one son because it was through that son that the promise was made. Jesus was the only begotten son of his father. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his what? His only son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 22, what we see is Isaac carried the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. Well, what do we know about the story of, of Christ? He carried the wood up the Via Dolorosa all the way up to Calvary upon which he would be sacrificed. Isaac was to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. He was to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. Now, Moriah is a mountainous region, and, and this region would become the most holy place in the world for the people of God. What do I mean by that? Well, here on Mount Moriah is where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And then much later, it's the same place where God would send David to go and buy the threshing floor of a man named Arana, the Jebusite. And he said, you're going to have to buy that and make an offering. And David did that. And then the next generation of Solomon built the temple of God right there on the land that David had bought. So where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, David bought that land. Solomon built the temple. And for thousands of years, this was the place where the people of God would come and worship God. But it was Jesus, it would be Jesus who would write the last chapter of Moriah. What do I mean? I mean that Jesus, in his, what we know of his uh, three short years of ministry, it is in this region where he spent most of his time. He would go up to that temple and he would teach. It was in that same place where he flipped over the tables of the money changers and ran them out. Right here on Mount Moriah is where he would spend the last week of his Life And if you go just north of the temple, if you follow up the, that mountainous region to its peak, um, what you find on Mount, uh, in that Moriah region is a place called Golgotha. And that is where Christ, what we call Calvary, it's where Christ will be sacrificed. Boy, do you think God's in the details here? You think God's in the details? I got one more for you. Isaac was dead for three days. You say, wait a minute. Pastor Matt, I'm confident. You don't even know the story you're preaching on today. And because um, Isaac didn't die, right? God spared him, right? God stopped the hand of Abraham. How is it that Isaac was dead for three days? I want you to look at, again, at verse 4. It says that on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. So it was a three-day journey. Now think about that. God gives Abraham the command, and what's the command? I want you to kill your son. And then three days later, Abraham almost kills his son, but the angel stopped him. Here's the point. Isaac, in Abraham's mind, was dead for three days because the moment God commanded it, Abraham gave his obedience. He gave his yes. And for three days, they journeyed to the place where he would carry it out. For three days, his boy was dead. Well, the greater sacrifice, <laughs> the greater substitute was also dead. It says that on the uh, Jesus was killed and he was physically dead for three days. And then according to Luke chapter 24 on that beautiful Sunday morning, the angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is what? He is risen. You see the shadow and the substance, right? But I want to tell you right about there is where the similarities end. Uh, because for Jesus... There was no ram caught in the thicket. Uh, 
For Jesus, there was no substitute that would take his place. For Jesus, there was no moment when the hand of his father was stayed and he was spared. For Jesus, there was only not what I will, but what you will. You see, what Isaac did unknowingly, Jesus did willingly. And what Isaac did partially, Jesus did completely. Which leads us to the second and last point, and it is this. Where Isaac was spared by a substitute, Jesus was sacrificed as a substitute. Where Isaac was spared as a substitute, Jesus was sacrificed as a substitute. Now, or where Isaac was sacrificed by a substitute. You know, a lot of times we hear the word substitute, and we, and we have all these things kind of conjure up in our mind. I remember you probably were the same when a substitute would come into your class at school. It was pretty much just wheels off for the next hour, right? Just wheels off. And um, it was awesome. It was chaos. And uh, I remember I went to uh, a buddy's house when I was in school, and we're hanging out, and he said, hey, do you, do you want some, some Dr. Pepper and some Chips Ahoy cookies? And I'm like, look at me. Yes. The answer is yes. Of course. Let's go. Let's be about that. Why ask? Let's go get it. And what he came back with, however, was um, great value chocolate chippers and something called Dr. Thunder. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not slamming chocolate chippers and Dr. Thunder. I'm not slamming those things. That's just not what he told me we were about to have. And so when you're expecting Dr. Pepper and you sip Dr. Thunder, something in your brain goes, this is close, but something's not right. This is close, right? When you think you're eating a Chips Ahoy cookie and what you're eating is a chocolate chipper. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with those. If I knew that's what was coming, I'll crush it right now. I like it. The problem is it was a poor substitute for what I thought was coming. And so sometimes when we think about a substitute, we get these images in our mind that fall well short of what Jesus is doing on our behalf. And so what I want us to do is to transition our thinking out of those and to begin to think about something different. And that is this, Jesus was the substitute that we cannot live without. Jesus was the substitute that was the greater. He was the fulfillment. He was the holy, divine, God-given substitute that would atone for our sins on our behalf. He is the substitute that was absolutely necessary. Look at verse 13 of 22. It says this, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see, Isaac was spared by a substitute of the ram. You remember when Isaac asked his father uh, about the lamb for the offering, he said, he said, hey, dad, I see the wood. Uh, I see the fire. I, I, you got the knife. All of that checks out, but I don't see the lamb for the burnt offering. That seems like a perfectly logical question to me. This would not have been Isaac's first um, uh, time to go for a sacrifice. Some scholars believe that Isaac could have been as old as in his upper teens at this moment. All right, so this would not have been his first sacrifice. And in verse, uh, uh, verse 8 of chapter 22, Abraham said some very important words. He said, Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. You see, one of the things I love about Abraham is that unbelievable faith to trust 
God. Even in this moment of being told to sacrifice his son, he is trusting in the promise that was given some 30 years before that God through Isaac would cause his descendants to outnumber the stars in the sky. He was trusting the promise so much that even in this moment, he believed that God would provide. You see, there's a transition happening in Abraham's heart right now. Abraham is moving from seeing God as the one who requires the sacrifice to seeing God as the one who provides it. And I wonder sometimes if we get hung up seeing our relationship with the Lord as uh, just things that are required of us. I have to do this. I have to do that. I can't do that. I need to check this box. We need to do this. Listen, our relationship with the Lord is not a series of boxes to check. It's not a recognition. It's not saying he requires of us. It is a recognition of what he has given to us. He is the God who provided the sacrifice. And when you shift to your understanding, being away from the God who requires it toward the God who provides it, then everything that he asks of you becomes a joy to let go of so that you can take a hold of the greater sacrifice. Pastor Matt, how do I let go of my love for fill in the blank? You treasure the greater sacrifice. That's why the scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because the more I taste and see that he is good, the more it puts sin out of flavor in my life. So if you're in a season and you are struggling with sin and you can't figure out how to break free, I'm going to tell you right now how to break free. You treasure the God who provides. You treasure Jesus Christ who is the greater sacrifice. You feast on Jesus. And what you'll start to find is that the lesser things don't taste as good as they used to because you you, you're pulled up to the table of the feast, the king. Abraham sees God as the one who provides the sacrifice. It's why he names this place in the Hebrew Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Now, I want, I want you to think about that ram for just a moment. Can, can you even imagine that moment of relief? Can you even imagine that moment? Can you begin to fathom the joy Abraham must have had of seeing that ram hung up in the thicket? Because when God said, stay your hand, and he stopped him from killing Isaac, he didn't say, I'm not requiring you to sacrifice. He didn't say there's no more sacrifice required. He didn't cancel the command. He just provided the fulfillment of it. And what a treasure, what a treasure that ram must have been to Abraham. Why? Because it became the substitute. The ram uh, was the substitute for Isaac. It stood in Isaac's place. It died Isaac's death. Suddenly, what was about to be lost to Abraham forever had been found, and what was about to be destroyed was being restored. Why? Because this ram was the substitute. What had been dead to Isaac for three days is now suddenly restored and resurrected to him. What a treasure that must have been. Now, you may be thinking, now, when Isaac asked a question earlier about where's the lamb... God, Abraham said God would provide a lamb, but what God provided was a ram. 
So does that mean uh, Abraham was wrong? I would say no. No, it means that this was a shadow of something to come, a greater sacrifice, a greater substitute. You see, the day was coming when God would provide a lamb, a perfect lamb that would be sacrificed for the sins of all mankind. And uh, when God provided that lamb some nearly 2,000 years later, we see the fulfillment of that promise when God, or when Abraham spoke the words, God will provide a lamb, the fulfillment of that promise is seen when John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, looks up, sees Jesus walking and says what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the redemptive thread all the way through. God said, I'm going to give you a lamb, but he provided a ram, a partial sacrifice, a partial substitute. But the day was coming when he would look up and say, there's the lamb of God. There's the greater sacrifice. There's the full substitute. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What, is it, what does it mean then for Jesus to be our substitute? What does that mean? That Jesus, just like that ram that was caught in the thicket, Jesus stood in our place. He died our death. He made satisfaction for our debt and our guilt. In 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 18 and 19, it says that we've been ransomed. That means we've been bought back uh, from the feudal ways that we inherited from our fathers. What was that? That means that we've been bought back from the nature we got from Adam. He said, and we weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver and gold. But according to verse 19, look at this. It says, we've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a what? A lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus satisfied the ransom demand. He became our atoning substitute, meaning he took the full measure of God's wrath and judgment on sin for us. That's why we call the work of Jesus on the cross, that's why we call it the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Which means that when he offered an atonement, when he paid the price, it was not to satisfy God's judgment on his sin, but to satisfy God's judgment on ours. He stood in our place. He is the greater substitute. He is the greater sacrifice. It is why he was born. When we, all of the imagery that we love about Christmas, don't let this be lost on you. Jesus was born to die. He was born to become the greater sacrifice. You know, I asked you earlier about what a treasure that ram must have become to Abraham when he saw it, what a treasure it must have been. How much more, church, should we treasure Jesus Christ? How much more should he be our treasure? How much more? You see, the ram was a momentary substitute Abraham was going to have to sacrifice again. There would be future sacrifices that he and Isaac would have to do together. But Jesus was the ultimate. He was the final substitute and the greater sacrifice that once and for all covered the sins of all men of all, for all time before a holy God. Which means this, every rebellious moment of your life, every one of them, everything you have done, everything you have left undone, was covered by the blood 
of the Lamb. It's why right now, right now at this very moment uh, in heaven, John the Revelator got a vision of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 5, he said, I saw, I saw uh, these heavenly creatures around the throne, and I saw the elders around the throne. And then he, he said, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 saints and angels, and they were singing one song. You know what the song is? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing, so that when we rightly treasure Jesus as the Lamb of God, we link our hearts to heaven, and we join the eternal song of worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I I don't want to lose the wonder just because I know the story. I want to see it new. I want to see it fresh. I want to remember that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. You know, when uh, I was listening to a sermon this week by a, a pastor named Skip Heitzig. And Pastor Skip said this. He said, he said, all of heaven must have wondered when Abraham lifted that knife, he was getting ready to plunge it into the chest of his son. He said, all of heaven must have marveled at how one man could love God so much. He said, but when Jesus carried that cross up Mount Moriah to Golgotha to Calvary, he said, all of heaven marveled at how God could love man so much. I hope that you know this today. You are loved by God. You are loved by him. He loves you. He sees you and he loves you. He knows you. And he loves you. And that love was demonstrated in such a way that even though there are things in your life that separated you from him, he loved you so much that he dealt with those things for you. And Jesus became for us the substitute. There was a dead owed. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. There was a debt owed for the sin in our life. But bless God, there's a B part to that verse. It said, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus became the substitute. He became for you the greater sacrifice. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the question I want to ask you. Have you been transformed by the greater sacrifice? Have you been transformed by the greater sacrifice? Has there been a time in your life when you can say, I have met Jesus and he changed me. He changed me. If you're here this morning and your honest confession would be, I I just don't know that that's happened. I've come to church. I've done some good things. I've gone to life group. I've been in church all my life. There may have even been a moment where you said some words when you were a kid, but my question for you is this. Has Jesus changed you? Are you marked by the fact that you've met him and you've never been the same? Have you been transformed by the greater sacrifice? If not, just a minute, we're going to start singing in the moment we do. If that, if the Holy Spirit is in your heart right now saying, that's you, he's speaking to you, then the moment we start singing, I want you to step out and come down. The second question is for those that are in Christ, and it's this. 
Are you treasuring the greater sacrifice? Are you treasuring? What a gift, what a treasure that ram became to Abraham. How much more then ought we to treasure Christ who was the final substitute for our sins? Are you treasuring? Or would your confession be, I've let all kinds of other things take his place. There are other things getting my affection. There are other things getting my attention. There are other things that are drawing my passions away. If that's you this morning, then right where we are, when we, right where you are, when we start to worship, you can kneel, you can sit, you can come down here, you can take one of us by the hand, but you can reset that this morning. Confess that and let Jesus be the treasure. Amen. I hope that you've been encouraged this morning. We're going to pray, then we're going to stand and respond. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, right now as we worship, I pray that the enemy, your enemy, God, would have no place in this room, but rather that there would just be a movement of your Holy Spirit. And right now, God, to every heart that you've spoken to today, I pray they would step out and come forward and step into the treasure of the greater sacrifice in you. We love you. We ask you to move in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.